All right. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 37, and hold your place there. Uh, We'll read it in just a minute. And uh, something that's always frustrated me, and I would imagine that some of you are like me on this, uh, it's always frustrated me when Christians spend a great deal of time obsessing over and uh, arguing over, giving a great deal of time and energy to things that are pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Uh, You know, Christians have all kinds of things that we care about, argue, and fight about that really, in the final analysis, just don't matter that much. Um, Things like this, how often do you receive communion? What should a pulpit in a church look like? Should it be a big, giant, white pulpit? Should it be a simple wooden stand? Uh, Should it just be a music stand? Or should it be a really cool, black, metal, shiny pulpit that that looks like concert, uh, whatever that looks like? Uh, (laughs) uh, What style of music should be used in worship? Uh, should a church have midweek services or should a church do what we do and have uh, small groups meet throughout the week? What should a church building look like? Should it look like a church building or is it okay for it to look like something uh, other than a church building? You know, these topics and, and many other topics like them are, are interesting things to discuss. And, and differing viewpoints are great as long as we understand we're dealing in the realm of opinions. That, that, that really you can go in any direction on any number of these type uh, issues. But yet these things are sometimes the cause of great tension among Christians. Thankfully, it's not so much the case here, but in many churches uh, it, it is. Cause for great tension, even though they're matters of really not a lot of significance. Another frustrating thing that Christians tend to do sometimes is to give great uh, importance to uh, external matters, appearances, that really don't have much of anything to do with the heart. Uh, I've seen churches in the past that uh, had traditions that were very important to them, and they would make great judgments about everybody else based on these external things. For example, I was a part of a church once that had a great tradition of people praying together in the prayer room before the service. Now, let me say this is a great thing. This is a wonderful thing. We hope to have something like this happen here at some point. But, but you had to sort of walk through this prayer room to get into uh, the auditorium. And, and there was a bit of uh, unspoken disapproval that occurred if you just walked through the prayer room and went on into the auditorium and didn't stop to pray. Now, you know, um, what people in the prayer room didn't know is the person who walked through without praying might have just prayed for an hour at home before they came. And yet a great judgment was made between the spiritual people who were praying in the prayer room and the, uh, the losers who just walked through the prayer room and, and sat down uh, in the auditorium. And, and so because of these kind of external emphases that sometimes happen in churches, many of us do something. We learn how to give service 
to the appearances. We, we learn how to keep up the appearances. So, so we learn how to do the things that we know everybody's going to be judging us for, but the reality of our daily lives is something very different than what it looks like. Uh, you know, in, um, uh, in the example that I gave, you know, people might show up in the prayer room because that's what was expected. They, they might pray in, in the church tradition this was a part of, they would pray really fervently and really loudly in the prayer room. So, so they might do that, but they could do all of that. They could look really good, and yet in their hearts, they could actually still be very far from God. You see, often we are posers, We've figured out how to present an external picture that meets with everybody's approval, makes it look like we're really good and close to God, but we're posing for everybody else when the reality is that our hearts are far from God. If you've ever noticed these things and found them to be distasteful, you should know that Jesus finds them distasteful. And that's what our text is about today. And if you're in the place, by some chance, uh, of living this way in your own life, as most of us are at some time or other in our lives, you should know that Jesus finds that kind of living to be distasteful. So if I can say it a little more directly, if that's where you're at, he finds the way that you're living to be distasteful. And that's what our text is about today. So let's turn our attention to the text there at verse 37 in chapter 11. Uh, If you're holding your place there, I'll read and you follow along as I do. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then... You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Imagine this scene. Jesus is at this guy's house for dinner. And he just, he doesn't put up with any of the Pharisees' nonsense. Just, you're foolish. Wow. Jesus always tells people they're good boys and girls. That's what our culture tells us. Uh, Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Then one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. A guy from another group of religious leaders stands up to defend the Pharisee. And that was a mistake. (laughs) Uh, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you. 
I mean, Jesus is arguing with everybody at the dinner. Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will help be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So we see Jesus is invited to the house of this Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees, is, if you've been around the church uh, very long at all, you know they were the most strict of the Jewish uh, religious leaders and their observance of the law. They were very meticulous in, in following the law down to the, to the smallest details, very meticulous in following the traditions that they have, had erected uh, in addition to the law. And verse 38 tells us that as Jesus reclined at the table to eat, the Pharisee noticed that he had not washed his hands before the meal, and the Pharisee was surprised. Now, it's important to note that Jesus was not eating with dirty hands. Uh, at least that's not what was, what's meant here. Maybe he was, I don't know, but, but that's not what's going on here. The Pharisee isn't surprised because he noticed dirt under Jesus' fingernails. That's not the deal. What this is referencing is that there were very specific traditions that had been developed as to how you were to ceremonially wash your hands before you ate. The water for washing was supposed to come from a stone vessel it was water that was set aside for this very purpose because uh, other water may have been contaminated. You had to first pour the water beginning at the tops of your fingers and allowing it to run down to your wrist, which I was thinking about this, uh, that this week. I was thinking, how does that work? How do you stop it at your wrist? But anyway, um, not a productive line of thinking, I don't think. Um, and, and then... Uh, uh, after you poured it that way, then you were to take your fist and like rub the water into your hands with your fist. This is all coming from William Barclay. So if it's wrong, blame Barclay. But this is uh, what he tells us the tradition was. And then after that, you were to take the, the water and then you were to pour it from your wrist back to the end of your fingers. So water, rub it in, then water back the opposite uh, direction. This is what Jesus didn't bother to do. So the Pharisee, what he was surprised by is that Jesus didn't follow the religious ritual that the Pharisees had imposed on all of those who would be considered faithful followers of the God of Abraham. In the very next verse, as soon as we're told that the Pharisee was surprised by this, we just go to the very next verse. And we find 
uh, what Jesus thinks about empty religious rituals. We find that he sees them as being very distasteful. He knew the Pharisee disapproved of what he had not done. And he didn't bother to humor the Pharisee. He, he didn't reason, well, I understand this is important to him. So I'll go ahead and, and keep up with the tradition. Instead, what he does is he provides uh, just a devastating initial rebuke of the Pharisee. And then he follows it with six very specific rebukes that come back and support the broad, general, first rebuke. Jesus says to the surprised Pharisee, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Now, some of what Jesus uh, says here is a bit difficult to understand, and it really goes beyond the time that we have today. But what is quite clear is that we see in this passage two common problems that Jesus had with Pharisees. And two common problems that I believe Jesus has with religious people of all time and all places. The first problem is that the Pharisees and religious people tend to focus on appearances rather than internal realities. The second closely related problem is that they focus on unimportant details rather than matters of great significance. And we'll see both of these things play out in the six rebukes uh, that Jesus gives to them. But even here in this single verse of 39, we see these two common problems illustrated. The, the Pharisee was very troubled that Jesus isn't being obedient to their external religious ritual. And, and they're annoyed that he has not followed down to, to the last detail their traditions for ceremonial washing. And Jesus confronts them uh, with, with what is more important than their external ritual, with what's more important than, than the keeping of their meticulous details. What's more important is the internal reality of their hearts. And, and Jesus slams this, uh, slams them with this truth uh, that, they, that, that they give lots of attention to what everyone can see. But inside, where no one can see but God, they are full of greed, they are full of wickedness. The, the external appearance does not match the internal reality. The, the meticulous obedience to religious details doesn't translate into what's really important, what is really significant, which is the condition of their heart toward God. And so he asked a, a piercing question. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? What he's saying is, since you're offering such service to God externally, what reason do you have for not offering that same level of care to the internal matters? Isn't God Lord of both the outside and the inside? And friends, if, if we've allowed our love for the Lord to grow cold, if, if we've begun to live as posers, taking great concern for how we look on the outside, 
giving the appearance of piety on the outside while on the inside we're really very far from God, then Jesus asked this same question of us. What gives that you're offering me this external service but giving me nothing of the internal reality of your life? And then Jesus moves into these six specific rebukes of the Pharisees that are relevant uh, rebukes for religious people in all places and all times. And in offering these six specific rebukes, Jesus is overwhelming the Pharisees with evidence of how they focus on appearances, how they focus on external things, how they obsess over unimportant details rather than on things that really matter. As we see what Jesus says, my uh, request of all of us here today is that we would be open to God placing his finger on areas of our own lives where we are guilty of keeping up appearances, where, where we are guilty of obsessing over unimportant details or, or, or uh, living our lives in such a way that we're giving attention to some, some external detail. But in doing that, we're overlooking more significant matters. We're overlooking the matters of our heart. Look at verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So Jesus begins making his case against the Pharisees by confronting and rebuking their hypocrisy. Now, the purest form of hypocrisy is when we condemn others for doing something or we condemn others for not doing something when we are either doing or not doing the exact same thing we're condemning them for. Uh, That is the, the purest form of hypocrisy. But that isn't the only form of hypocrisy. And what we see here in the Pharisees is perhaps the most common form of hypocrisy, both in their day and in ours. What they are doing is presenting an image of great piety, giving great care to tithe down to the, to the last amount of their earnings, but they are completely neglecting things that are far more important. They're, they're not offering any service to God in the weightier areas of justice and the love of God. So, so again, they're, they're posing. They're, they're doing something that was fairly, uh, fairly easy for them to do. Not so easy for uh, us to do sometimes, but fairly easy for them to do. But leaving these weightier matters undone. There are a lot of interesting things here. Uh, one thing that I found interesting as I was thinking about this this week is that Jesus makes it clear that you can be tithing and not love God at all. You know, tithing can either flow out of a heart that's surrendered to God, a heart that truly loves God, or tithing can be a way that we just try to keep God off our backs. It it can be a way that we try to earn our way with God. It, It can be a way that we try to put God in our debt. When in fact our hearts don't belong to Him at all. Also notice that Jesus does affirm tithing. People often say tithing is not a New Testament deal, but Jesus affirms tithing. He says that they should practice love and justice while not leaving tithing undone. 
Just thought I'd throw that in there. (laughs) But here's the hypocrisy. They were doing something that allowed them to convince others that they were devout and pious people. They even convinced themselves of this, at least at some level, when in fact their hearts were not inclined toward God at all. They were hypocrites. And this was distasteful to Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes them. Friends, Jesus is displeased when we manage our image in such a way that we look really devout. But the inward reality, the reality that no one sees, no one knows, but God isn't anything close to our public image. He's displeased with that. It's distasteful to him. And so what about you? Does your private reality match your public image? Or is there a huge disconnect between what appears to all of us to be true about you and what is in fact true about you? Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Jesus' second rebuke to the Pharisees is centered on pride. They were full of pride. The the most important seats in the synagogue were the seats uh, at the very front of the synagogue that faced out uh, toward the rest of the congregation. And, And in the rest of the seating in the synagogues, the people who were the most honored were placed to the front uh, of the uh, auditorium. And, and the further back you went, the, 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 the less honor uh, you received. Uh, sorry, Tim and Jan. Uh, you're, you're just, <laughs> we, we apologize for your seating arrangement today. Uh, and so the, the Pharisees had this advantage in that uh, they were seated at the front, so they were visible to everybody, and they, they really enjoyed being visible uh, to everybody. Now, in the vineyard, we don't have much of a frame of reference for this. But, you know, in uh, a lot of church traditions, including the one I grew up in and probably in uh, the one some of you grew up in, this thing uh, uh, played out, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in our own time. It played out. Uh, pastors and other leaders would, in many church traditions, have special places of uh, seating up here uh, on the stage. And uh, I've been considering, you know, uh, putting <laughs> some special chairs up here. I was thinking about, you know, there's um, three elders, myself, Jeff, and Andrew. I was thinking about maybe three chairs here in the middle, and I would put two little chairs on the side for Jeff and Andrew, and then one big, big tall chair in the middle, and that would be mine. Wow, guys, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I've seen that in, in churches. Uh, that's, that's not an unheard of thing. Uh, and, and in fact, in my, in my first experience being a part of leading ch- uh, church services or preaching, uh, I was a part of a church where this, uh, this was the, the tradition. And so if you had any role in the, in the service during the, you know, the formal part of the service, you would sit on the stage. And I was always conflicted by this because, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, it was... You know, we all struggle with pride sometimes. On the one hand, it was kind of neat to have a special place to sit. Uh, But even doing that, I always felt sort of weird about it. Like, 
There's just something that seems odd about this. One thing that was odd about it for me is this was in a very demonstratively Pentecostal church, and I just wasn't very demonstrative. So I was the one up front that looked like they didn't fit. So, but, but something just felt very uncomfortable about it. What ways do we allow pride to enter our hearts? How do we see opportunities to lead within the context of the church? Do we see them as calls to humble service? Or do we see them more as ways to set ourselves apart from our peers? As ways to, be, uh, to gain some type of special recognition? Do we offer up our service to God because we really love God? Or do we offer up our meager contributions to God as a means of justifying ourselves before Him? Do we become proud of our giving, of our serving, of our praying, as if any of it could possibly impress a perfectly holy God? Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for pride. So, so what about you? What about me? Is, is there pride in you? Not, not pride in a job well done, but, but in an I'm better than others because I do X and so I know God sees me as special type of attitude. You know, most of us would initially say, no, 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 I don't think that at all. And yet if you dig a little deeper, in very subtle ways, we often do begin to think that. You know, it doesn't take many, many days of being consistent with our prayer life. We start to feel pretty good about ourselves. Wow, I prayed 10 minutes, three days in a row. Look at me. So examine yourself. Is there pride? Because Jesus finds this distasteful. And here's why. It's concerned with appearance rather than internal reality. It gets puffed up. Our pride gets puffed up over unimportant things and allows us, sets us up to ignore things that are of much greater significance. Verse 44, Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being like unmarked graves. Now, this one requires some explanation. It's not immediately clear what this means. And so I turn to William Barclay to help us out with this. He reminds us that Numbers chapter 19, verse 16 teaches that anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. And what it meant to be unclean was that you were barred from religious worship for seven days after you were declared unclean. Something that would sometimes happen is that a person would inadvertently come in contact with a grave. There would be a grave that was unmarked, so they weren't aware of it, and so they would walk over it. But it didn't matter. Even if they walked over it completely unaware, if someone that knew it was there observed this, their own ignorance of the grave's presence didn't stop them from being declared unclean. And here's what Barclay writes about all of this. The Pharisees were exactly like that. Although people might not know it, their influence could do nothing but harm. 
all unawares, those who came in contact with them were being touched for evil. They might not suspect the corruption, but it was there. All the time they were being infected with wrong ideas of God and His demands. Friends, this is a stunning rebuke. I think, actually, I have to admit this is a passage I've not spent two minutes thinking about before preparing for this message. I think this may be one of the most troubling passages that I've ever read in the Bible. Realize what Jesus is saying here. The Pharisees, religious leaders, religious people, in many ways very devout people, people that are recognized by their community as very devoted, giving great service to God, they are a harmful influence on everybody they come in contact with. When people are touched by them, they are touched by evil. They are corrupting people by infecting them with wrong ideas about God. How are they doing that? It's what we've said all throughout this message. By elevating the importance of appearances over internal realities. By focusing people on religious duties, unimportant religious rituals, rather than matters of significance, matters of the heart. And friends, this plays out in churches all the time. It it plays out in legalistic church traditions. It plays out in churches that don't necessarily see themselves as legalistic, but have their own subtle forms of legalism. There is so much emphasis that gets placed on external things that members of these religious communities begin to give all of their attention to meticulously attending to all of the things that everybody can see and that they know everybody is going to judge them on. And they put so much effort and energy into those things that they neglect the matters of the heart. They become convinced that they really are righteous because they uh, observe these legalistic um, uh, expectations while their hearts are actually very far from God. They learn to value the things that all the emphasis is put on. So they focus all of their uh, efforts on things like wearing the right clothes, not smoking, not drinking, attending church three times a week, all good things. But they don't think twice about a heart that's filled with jealousy, a heart that's filled with pride, a heart that's filled with envy and gossip and lust because no one can see their heart. So they're able to come off as righteous because the external appearance is right. And so they check off the go to church, the give in the offering, the serve in a ministry, the pray at mealtime boxes. We check those off. But what these things end up becoming is nothing more than a way to appear devout. To try to put God in our debt all the time at the level of our heart 
in the life that no one else sees. They are, we are, far from God. Jesus says that the Pharisees are corrupting a corrupting influence on people they touch uh, because without the people they touch being aware of what is happening, this is another stunning part of it, the people don't know it's happening, they can't see it. It's so subtle, it's so, it's so insidious, the people don't know it's happening. Kind of like Satan's work in people's lives. The Pharisees are influencing them toward concern about appearances and unimportant details. And in doing that, they are influencing them away from a true surrender of the heart. And so I know there's a smart person or two here today who's saying, Well, Brian, I guess you pastors and other leaders better make sure that you give attention to internal realities and not just influencing us all toward outward external observances. And I would say to you, you are right. And trust me, this message hit me very hard this week. But I would also submit to you today that the Pharisees are not just representative of religious leaders. They are representative of all religious people who begin to practice empty ritualism rather than devotion that comes from a heart that's truly surrendered to God. So friends, this isn't just for church leaders This is for everyone that identifies as a follower of Jesus. So what about you? Are you like an unmarked grave? Corrupting your children with wrong ideas about God because you are practicing empty ritualism that means absolutely nothing to your heart. They, they don't know they're getting that message. It, it, they completely miss any conscious awareness that they're getting that message. And yet they are. Corrupting them. Corrupting them. Are you corrupting that new believer at work by seeing their deep passion and enthusiasm for the thing to, things of God as being a bit over the top? And so you're influencing them toward a more moderate, more sustainable, more mature approach to Christianity. Are you doing damage to a family member by hammering them over some legalistic, insignificant detail? Let all of us face this sobering reality to the extent that we allow ourselves to focus on appearances at the expense of internal realities to the extent that we allow ourselves to focus on unimportant details rather than matters of significance, we become like the Pharisees. Seeing ourselves and presenting ourselves as guides to be followed, examples to be modeled after, when in reality we are corrupting those around us like an unmarked grave. We don't look like a grave, but we're a grave. We're infecting people, unknown to them, with hypocrisy, pride, and insincerity. I've been searching the last several times I've preached in Luke for a happy, clappy message. I just haven't come up with one. Uh, The text just, it's not there in the text. So, So I'm sharing what's there. 
And then verse 45, this expert in the law, this, this other religious uh, leader, a scribe, he steps in to defend the Pharisee. And so Jesus turns his attention to him, and he produces the same overwhelming indictment of the scribes. Verse 46, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load, your, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. There are two basic um, interpretations of this passage with people having some disagreement over which is the better interpretation. One interpretation of it is that the scribes were requiring things of people that they themselves were not living up to. The other one is that they were requiring things of people. They were living up to the things they were requiring, but they were giving no assistance to people in living up to it. So they were demanding things but not equipping people uh, to live up to it. And so whichever way you want to do it, they were either guilty of hypocrisy or they were guilty of a lack of compassion or perhaps both. Verse 47, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. What Jesus is basically saying here is that they are just like their fathers were. They only honor dead prophets. Those are the only ones they like, dead ones. <laughs> they build monuments for the uh, prophets that their fathers killed, but they continue in the steps of their fathers in despising the messengers of God sent in their own day. And of course, this was beginning to play itself out with Jesus himself, who they were going to plot against and they were going to kill. And friends, I submit to you today that, that we are very much like this, just absent the killing part. But we're very much like this. You know, we read stories in the Bible of the messengers of God being rejected by the people of God, and we marvel at how hard their hearts were. We can't believe how hard-hearted God's own people were. But let God send a messenger to us to challenge us about our own lives. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a ministry leader. Maybe it's a Christian friend who God nudges to go and speak the truth in love to you. And we're ready to fight. We're ready to fight. We're, we're outraged at the intrusion in our lives. We can't, we can't believe that they would be so nosy. We're, we're offended that they would dare to question us about anything. Religious people are like the Pharisees. They revere the prophets of the past while despising the messengers that God sends directly to them. So what about you? Has God sent a messenger to you? A friend who had a difficult word to share with you? And you've despised the messenger? You've rejected the messenger? Verse 52, What are you experts in the law? Because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So Jesus rebukes them for being obstacles to the truth. They saw themselves as ones who defined and explained the truth. But Jesus said they were actually keeping people from the truth. They were satisfied with ritualism disconnected from the heart. They were satisfied with using Scripture as a means of controlling others and bolstering their reputations. They were satisfied with, with uh, dealing with all of these external things and not giving attention to internal realities. 
They had not truly entered into a relationship with God. And because they hadn't, they were now being a hindrance to those because of the things that they emphasized. And some of you might say right now, that's right, you religious people are awful, awful people. That's why I like Jesus, but I don't like Christians. Which, you hear this a lot. I like Jesus, I don't like Christians. Well, if that's your position today, I I just have a suggestion I'd like you to hear me out on. And that is that um, it seems to me that there is a lot of common ground between religious folks and irreligious folks when it comes to these rebukes that Jesus has given here today. Now, now let let it be very, very clear. It is true that Jesus is targeting religious folks in this text. I, I am not trying to obscure that fact at all. It is religious people who, who, who he's got in view. But I submit to us today that these rebukes of Jesus hit every single person. If you're here today and you consider yourself to be non-religious, would, would you say that hypocrisy is never a part of your own life? Has pride never entered your heart? Do you really think that your antagonism toward faith hasn't been like an unmarked grave for someone? Negatively impacting someone who was moving in a direction toward God? Are you always compassionate? Have you never been hostile to a messenger that God sent to you? Have you never been an obstacle? to someone coming to a relationship with God? Actually, the word irreligious is probably a bit of a misnomer because I would suggest that most of us are religious whether or not we're Christian. Most of us are religious in the sense of trying to justify ourselves before God, trying to live in a way that gains God's approval or gains the approval of whatever cosmic thing is out there. You're probably religious. You just may not be a Christian variety of religious. Maybe your religiosity uh, uh, amounts to trying to gain God's approval by pointing out to Him that you're not one of those Christian hypocrites. You know how much pride people take in not being a Christian hypocrite? No, instead, they're agnostic hypocrites. They're New Age unmarked graves. They're atheists full of pride that's an offense to God. These things Jesus rebukes aren't the sole domain of Christians, friend, but of religious and so-called non-religious people of all stripes. It's just true. Look at verse 53, and I am about finished. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So the Pharisees had been exposed by Jesus. The law experts had been exposed by Jesus. He had, to to use an old term, he had read their mail. He had read their mail. And instead of repentance, what happens? Their hearts are hardened even further against him. And so we're told that they opposed him fiercely. 
They began to probe him with questions, not to learn, but because they were waiting to catch him. They began looking for a way to discredit Jesus. That's what they were after. They wanted to discredit him. And this happens with us today. It happens with us. We're just like the Pharisees. Jesus, through the Bible or through a messenger he sends us or through our own conscience, he reads our mail, he exposes us for who we really are. He exposes our sinfulness. He's confronted us with the truth that we are not the good person that we are posing as being. And we don't like it. And so we begin to look for ways to discredit Jesus, ways to be done with him. And so we come up with all kinds of excuses for discrediting Jesus. We come up with excuses like, well, some Christians are really mean. I've been a Christian a long time, and that is true. Some Christians are really mean. We come up with excuses like, there's so much suffering in the world. We come up with things like the Bible is just really hard to understand. We come up with things like the church just wants my money. And the list goes on and on and on of the ways that we discredit Jesus when in reality what's going on is that our hearts have just been hardened because Jesus exposed us for who we really are. And there's one or two or a handful of people in here today, maybe a couple of handfuls who this is true of. Jesus confronts us. And instead of what we should do, our hearts are hardened toward him. So what should we do instead? Uh, If any of this that Jesus has rebuked in the Pharisees, he is through his word rebuking in you, what should you do? How should you respond? How should I respond? Well, whether religious or non-religious, the answer is the same. We need to repent. Repent. We need to acknowledge the truth that Jesus has confronted us with. We need to express sincerely to God that we are sorry for living in a way that dishonors His rightful rule of our lives. And then we need to turn away from our sin. And turn toward God. We stop posing. We stop keeping up appearances. We begin to focus on the internal realities of our hearts. We stop giving attention to all of these unimportant uh, matters that allow us to look good to others. And we start surrendering our lives in the areas of greatest significance. If you can receive the truth that Jesus is confronting you with today about your own life, the response you should give is repentance. Aren't you standing?